you always gotta trust your instincts. Like something when I got here to Carolina said, like, just bring your water. Coming up on Carolina Connection, UNC has found dangerous levels of lead in the water in six buildings with the potential for more. Good morning, I'm Lauren Lovett. And I'm Will Christensen. Also this morning, North Carolina schools face an increase in teacher and staff vacancies. UNC students struggle to afford housing as rent prices have spiked. Alumni are fighting back against the university's decision to tear down the ROTC building. And zombies invaded campus this week to urge students about preparing for emergencies. It was really engaging and fun to see everyone dressed in zombie costumes. Um, I learned a lot, especially about fire safety. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. Earlier this month, UNC's Office of Environment, Health, and Safety announced that some of Wilson Library's water fountains contained detectable levels of lead. And this week, EHS announced another five buildings had lead-contaminated water fixtures, leaving some UNC community members watching what they drink. Sophie Mallinson reports. As students make their way into Wilson Library's main study room, they pass by two historical water fountains. Taped to each fountain is a sign, OUT OF ORDER, DO NOT USE, in all caps. On September 1st, the Office of Environment, Health and Safety, or EHS, sent out an email to the UNC community saying that three of Wilson Library's public water fountains had detectable levels of lead. Yeah, you know, when I first read the email, I, I didn't feel surprised. Erin Siegel McIntyre is a UNC journalism professor in Carroll Hall. She first moved to Chapel Hill from Tijuana, Mexico, in 2020, and she described bringing with her a tradition of carrying around garrafones, or large water jugs, instead of relying on the water in a building. But after a while, I, I got tired. I, I would have a little wagon that I would use to, you know, pull my water into Carroll Hall. And I thought, okay, Erin, like, this is overkill. This is silly. Everyone else is using the water fountain. And so I, I did start using it about a year ago. But after the lead findings at Wilson Library. I am no longer drinking water from Carroll Hall. You always got to trust your instincts. Like something when I got here to Carolina said, like, just bring your own water. While EHS has not released any information about lead in Carroll Hall, Wilson Library's fountains were just the beginning of the findings. Lead was also found in other Wilson Library fixtures, like sinks, used by staff and faculty. And just this week, EHS confirmed that lead was also discovered in the Fordham, Manning, Phillips, and Hamilton Hall water fixtures, and South Building, too. The Orange County Water and Sewer Authority says they have no lead service lines. So as for the cause of the lead in the water, Executive Director of EHS, Catherine Brennan, says, We do think it's probably the fixtures um, that are causing the issue. Some uh, older fixtures, they might have used lead solder to weld components together back when they were produced. And so over time, what happens um, with the corrosivity of the water, it can start to leach the lead off of that solder. The Safe Drinking Water Act largely banned lead components from being used in water systems in 1986. But many of the university's buildings predate that. We're actually doing a comprehensive review of the make, um, model, and age of the water fountains to identify, you know, do we have older fountains, and then we can prioritize testing other areas for that reason. The university investigation, which was prompted after a summer research group did water testing across campus, found many of the contaminated fixtures had lead levels exceeding 15 parts per billion. 
This is what the EPA lists as the lead action level, which requires the EHS to try to reduce the water's lead concentration. While no amount of lead in water is considered a good thing, EPA action levels are set more with children in mind, as lead exposure at a young age is much more damaging, according to Ed Norman from the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, but even for adults, I mean, high levels of, of lead, you know, they can affect, you know, blood pressure, uh, all sorts of chronic conditions are affected by lead. With severe exposures, Norman described how lead can accumulate in the bone, causing things like limited wrist mobility. And the EPA says consuming lead can cause reproductive and kidney problems. Norman says there's no magic number in terms of how long it takes to see health effects. It can take years, and it really depends on how chronic the lead exposure is. Some of UNC's water fixtures were around or under lead levels of 15 parts per billion. Norman says people who use these fountains irregularly don't have much to worry about. However, one of Wilson Library's second-floor fountains had a measurement of at least 185 parts per billion. Certainly the employees who use that second-floor fountain, well, that's of concern. They would, you know, that would be a situation where they might want to consider having themselves tested. Some of the more recently announced buildings have water fixtures with even higher lead levels, like one in Fordham Hall that had a second test result of 662 parts per billion, despite having non-detectable levels the first time it was tested. That's 44 times more than the EPA's lead action level. Brennan emphasized that the latest lead updates will be posted to the EHS website. And with every water sample taking up to a week to get test results, she expects the lead investigation to take a month. In Chapel Hill, I'm Sophie Mallinson. This week, the Dallas Morning News reported that UNC and several other universities use tracking software to monitor students' social media accounts. While one purpose for that may be trying to detect students who present threats to campus safety, the article reported that colleges are also using it to keep track of protests. Here to talk about First Amendment rights at UNC is media law professor Tori Ekstrand. Dr. Ekstrand, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I know especially on this campus, like we have... um had several uh, issues uh, recently regarding the First Amendment. Can you describe like briefly what uh, the First Amendment climate is here, here at UNC? Yeah, well, I mean, we're a public university, right? So our job is to be a public forum for our students, for the community, for the state. Administrators and our um, board of trustees or board of governors have made it clear that they value the First Amendment. And there's certainly been a lot of discussion at high levels about the First Amendment. I think the bigger challenge is how is that felt communicated and lived on the campus that we actually occupy? So um, that is the bigger nut to crack. And with the political tensions in the country, it becomes more difficult. And it can make for a tense climate, but this is honestly exactly what the First Amendment hopes to host, you know, up until the point where obviously some of that goes too far. With regard to to this report uh, specifically, with regard to um, monitoring social media, what kind of effect can that have on uh, a free speech climate on students who want to exercise their their First Amendment right to to assembly? So I think it's important to point out that the First Amendment is not unlimited, and so the state does have interests um, from time to time in monitoring activities on campus, right? Um, we're a large campus with a lot of people, a lot of buildings, um, and a lot of grounds to protect. 
The issue with being surveyed on campus in, in a physical setting, I think one is about the nature of the policies that allow that. So what do the policies actually say about how far that can go? And then the second part of that is also, what do the policies say about the notice that's given to students about this? And then I think the third part, quite frankly, is the fact that we don't have either within the state or within the country, you know, an omnibus privacy law, a law that would cover some of these things that we see as potential harms or as harms when we find out we're being monitored. We have state surveillance going on. We have corporate surveillance going on. And what we don't, what we're not having is a larger societal conversation about what do we, what do we need to do? And, um, and that's what we need to have. So what do we need to do? What can college campuses and, and UNC specifically do to create a better forum for, for discussion like that? Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, I would just encourage our leadership not to be shy about or reticent about having these dis open discussions with students about their interest in security. Those are real, but those cannot overwhelm the Assembly and First Amendment rights, particularly when our campus has been very vocal of late about wanting to protect speech and assembly. And also to come out honestly and strongly say, you know, we don't condone the use of monitoring without sufficient notice and discussion in the community. Dr. Tori Ekstrand, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Rent prices across the U.S. reached new heights during the COVID-19 pandemic, and Chapel Hill is no exception. Rent is still up more than 18 percent compared to last September, according to Apartment List, and UNC students are feeling the effects. Lorelai Sykes has the story. It's an exciting time at the start of every new school year, as students who've spent their previous years living in cramped dorm rooms finally transition into their first apartments. Or at least it was before rent prices reached extreme heights during the COVID-19 pandemic. I met with Isaac Young in between classes, and we sat outside watching students come and go. Young is a junior at UNC. He's on the track team and a scholarship recipient, but his life looks pretty different compared to some students. Coming here was a bit of a culture shock, just the kind of like, I, I wouldn't call it generational wealth, but like there, there's people who come here knowing that they don't have to worry about anything. He's a Carolina Covenant Scholar. The Covenant Scholarship is an aid program that provides an opportunity to attend and graduate from UNC Chapel Hill debt-free. Students from a family with an income at the poverty line or less than 200% above it may qualify. The scholarship aids in all expenses from meal plans to housing. But once students move off campus, Hello. prices for housing looks quite different than dorm rooms. Rent in Chapel Hill has increased 18.7% and exceeds the national average increase of 10%, according to Apartment List. And that's a big burden for students coming from lower income backgrounds. I couldn't make ends meet all the way through the first semester, had to start working during fall training. And that came to a head. I started failing, not failing, but doing poorly in some of my classes. My training started to be hindered. My coach started to notice. He sat me down in the office and he was like, all right, what is going on? And I had to explain to him that I was literally door dashing in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night after practice to try and pay the rent. Young had to downsize from sharing a two bedroom rental to sharing a house with five other people. But he isn't the only Covenant scholar feeling the weight of rising rent prices. Senior Samuel Garzon says rent consumes the bulk of his paychecks. And as someone already living paycheck to paycheck, this just adds to the stress. Rent is number one. 
rent obviously is number one because I live with five other people in Carboro, um, and we divide the rent among ourselves. And sale is, is huge, like, um, yeah, probably like 70% of my paycheck just goes, goes to rent. So how do rent prices just go up? Professor Roberto G. Kershia in the UNC Department of City and Regional Planning explains why exactly rent is increasing and where the housing market stands after the 2008 recession. He explains that the construction industry froze during the recession, and once it was gaining back some momentum in the later years of the Obama administration, the COVID-19 pandemic hit, and construction slowed once again. Now, the demand for units is higher than the supply. And the market, because of that high demand, the market caters whether it's the biggest margin of profit is at the high end. So if you're a developer or you own a piece of land, you won't build affordable housing, you will build housing for richer people. He says market demographics have also shifted. Now, investors play a larger role in the housing market. And what do investors want? Returns. The way the market works is as they normally come back from the top, so they won't First, they, they make more money by making high income, higher income um, uh, housing, and uh, they make the margin is of profit is greater. One of the biggest and most profitable sectors in real estate is luxury student housing, which Chapel Hill is no stranger to. But for lower income students like Young and Garzon, this isn't always in reach. In Chapel Hill, I'm Lorelai Sykes. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Lauren Lovett. As North Carolina entered the new school year, teacher vacancy rates rose. Statewide, they've increased nearly 27% compared to the start of last year. Walter Ranke reports. All right, guys and gals, get out that blank piece of paper. I'm going to put a word on the board. Jason King stands at the board in his classroom at Heritage High School in Wake County. Wake County is the largest school district in North Carolina. It is also among the districts that have suffered from more teacher shortages this year. At the start of the school year, Wake County was short 401 teachers and 557 other staff. It's a problem. It's a problem. And it's not a problem that all of a sudden sort of materialized out of thin air. Vacancies are even higher in other counties. Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools has 99 vacancies, which is a 6% increase from last year. Wake and Chapel Hill Carborough are both among the highest paying districts in the state, but King says that teacher salaries are still lower than many other professions. When they froze our salaries for almost a decade, all, all of these were contributing factors that obviously were going to lead to us having a shortage uh, because it makes it less attractive to talented young people to want to enter the field of education if there is very little financial incentive. If vacancies are high in well-paying districts like Wake and Chapel Hill Carborough, then they are likely even higher in rural districts that tend to pay less. Constance Lindsay, a professor of education at UNC, explains how this dynamic works. It's like if, you know, Wake and Chapel Hill have a cold, the rural districts are going to have the flu, because it's always hard to staff there anyway, even in regular times. Lindsay says one of the factors behind the teacher shortage is pay. The base salary for North Carolina teachers is $37,000 a year, $4,000 less than the national average. The teaching profession itself is under a number of challenges. So, you know, not just with COVID, but also thinking about um, some of the issues with what they can teach in the classroom. Um, there's issues around pay. 
So I think there's, it's just the profession itself is under a number of pressures. And the way we're seeing that um, manifested is through people leaving. Lindsay says that another factor is cultural changes around teaching. Where there's a lot of backlash around teachers, what they're allowed to teach, who they're allowed to be. So I think for some people, the calculus is not worth it. But pay and cultural changes are not the only reason for the shortages. Andy Jenks, the chief communications officer for Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools, says there are other factors causing teachers to leave, like the Great Resignation and the pandemic. I also don't think you can put a one-size-fits-all reason behind why individuals move on to other professions, leave teaching or public education in general. I think there are some consistent factors, but I'm not sure there's a one-size-fits-all explanation for that. Another issue contributing to the teacher shortage is that there are just not enough young teachers coming out of college to fill the vacancies. Over the past decade, enrollment in colleges of education has decreased by 50%. In August, the Wake County School Board raised teacher pay by an average of 4%. Staff is prepared to implement these increases on the September payroll, including retroactive Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools has also implemented raises and signing bonuses for new teachers. Jenks says that Chapel Hill Carborough is working to create a comfortable environment for their teachers. We want to focus on employee engagement, wellness, joy, the things that you don't typically hear about in government meetings, but we want to bring that to our organization as well, or at least demonstrate how much we emphasize it so that uh, those who are with us understand that there's also more to it than compensation. Back in his classroom, King says that if school boards continue to focus on things like book banning and not on giving teachers the resources to deal with larger issues like hungry or abused students, teacher shortages will only go up. We have to take care of the people that are taking care of the people. And until we do that, I think that we're going to continue to see this shortage grow. The North Carolina Supreme Court is currently hearing the Leandro case, an education funding case. The Supreme Court is deciding whether to order the legislature to increase education funding. In Wake County, I'm Walter Rinke. For 80 years, UNC's Naval Armory has stood near the center of campus. It's where ROTC students take classes and where thousands of future service members have trained. But UNC has announced plans to tear down the building and move the ROTC elsewhere. As Reagan Allen reports, some alumni and veterans are trying to save it. ROTC students cheer each other on while running drills on Hooker Field in the early morning. The central point of the ROTC program is the UNC Naval Armory, which is in danger of being torn down and redeveloped to house the Institute for Convergent Science. NROTC alumni and students are voicing their opinions to save the building and preserve the education and camaraderie it brings. Parker Sylvia is a senior in the Naval ROTC and battalion commanding officer. We do anything inside in the Naval Armory. So we do all of our Naval Science classes. We do our Naval Leadership Labs. Uh, in the armory, we have um, a library in the armory, so we have, it's filled with a bunch of uh, naval history books and just leadership books in general. For generations, students and officers have learned, trained, and instructed in this building. The building has a rich history, authorized in 1941 for training during World War II. Two U.S. presidents, Gerald Ford and George H.W. Bush, trained in the building, and Ronald Reagan passed through it. Many more famous Americans passed through this building, like Hall of Fame players, coaches, war heroes, admirals, generals, and the first group of African Americans to officially break the color barrier in the United States Navy. Knowing that there's so much history 
uh, behind that place and like people that have gone to do amazing things like more than I can ever dream of have stood in the same spot that I have is just it's tremendous and it just makes me want to drive even more to become the person that I could be one day. The Naval Armory will likely stay the same for five years to allow for planning logistics and location of multiple units and departments, including ROTC. According to media relations, the Naval Armory is in poor condition. The building's artifacts of historical interest and value to alumni will be preserved. Plans to relocate the ROTC program were reaffirmed in the latest campus master plan in 2019. Andrew Hertel is the chair of the Academic Department of Naval Science at UNC and commanding officer of the Naval ROTC program. If we move to a different location, um, our mission changes zero percent. Um, we still need to send people of character out to the fleet. We need to prepare them mentally, morally, and physically to handle the challenges of being a commissioned officer. We do that today in the armory, and uh, if the, the, something else gets built here, we'll do that mission somewhere else. Mark Claude Felter, an ROTC alum, got his PhD at UNC from 1985 to 1987. Later, the head of Peace, War, and Defense at Carolina asked him to be detachment commander in the ROTC program, which he did from 1994 to 1997. That assignment as detachment commander was just a dream come true. I Best three-year period of my life. That's probably another reason I'm so tied to this building. He is leading the charge of alumni fighting to save this building. Claude Felter, as well as other alumni, have written to Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz, Senator Tom Tillis, Congressman David Price, and Governor Roy Cooper pleading for the preservation of this iconic building. We can preserve this building without costing the university a dime, and we intend to do so. It is just unimaginable to me that People who have made the supreme commitment to serve our country would, would not be able to come back to the building from which they made that initial commitment. It's, it's just, it, it's hallowed ground. I'm Reagan Allen in Chapel Hill. A horde of zombies was unleashed at UNC this week, but fear not, the Tar Heel Zombie Preparedness Festival aimed to eliminate emergencies, not cause one. Madison Ward has more. That's what could be heard throughout campus on Thursday. It would seem a no-brainer. Zombies aren't an everyday occurrence at UNC, but in honor of September's National Preparedness Month, the undead aim to educate the living, not to eat their brains. As organizers of the Tar Heel Zombie Preparedness Festival said, if you're ready for zombies, you're ready for any emergency. Zach Mayer, a junior at UNC, said he gained valuable food for thought at the event, which he aims to implement into his everyday life. I had a great time at the zombie festival. It was, uh, it was really engaging and fun to see everyone dressed in zombie costumes. Um, I learned a lot, especially about fire safety and also cooking. There were 27 festival exhibitors on Thursday, including Carolina Ready, UNC Police, the EHS Fire Safety and Emergency Response, and Carolina Dining Services. Many attendees and volunteers said their favorite part of Zombie Fest were the costumes and makeup the organizers wore, which were hard to miss during Thursday's event. Tiffany Bailey, the Director of Equal Opportunity and Americans with Disabilities Act Coordinator, was dressed in what she described as 
ultra zombie makeup. I got here about 7.45, so it took about an hour and a half to do my makeup. There's prosthetic pieces, there's glue, they're glued on with surgical glue, and then like putty. So the guys that did this makeup, they do makeup for movies and other types of things. Kelly Drayton, one of the assistant chiefs of the Chapel Hill Fire Department, recommends being prepared for at least 72 hours in a disaster, including having food, water, and a clothing bag ready to go. Drayton added, for fire safety, it's critical to exit a building when alarms sound, check smoke detector batteries, and have a fire extinguisher in the home. Drayton and the fire department led a live demonstration at ZombieFest. We have kind of two mock dorm rooms set up. The only difference is that one is sprinklered and one isn't, so that people can see the difference in how quickly a sprinkler really does put out the fire. Bob McSorley is an assistant fire marshal in the Fire and Life Safety Division of Orange County Emergency Services. He said this year marks the 100th anniversary of Fire Prevention Week. We're enjoying some zombies like everybody else, but we're talking to folks about fire and life safety and the importance of it. And the motto is, fire won't wait, plan your escape. So it kind of encompasses get out of your building, no two ways out. Mick Sorley said it's vital to ensure all aspects of fire safety protocol are followed to avoid accidents. Have a plan because everybody in America, studies have shown, they're going to have one major fire event or one major emergency event in their life. So have a plan, know how to mitigate and deal with that, and know which resources to reach out to get help. Hundreds of UNC students ultimately gathered for the zombie festival. All made it out alive, but with fresh information about how to handle disaster scenarios. Reporting from Chapel Hill, I'm Madison Ward. UNC's football team is taking on Notre Dame at 3.30 today in Keenan Stadium. Here to help me preview the game is Carolina Connections' Noah Monroe. Noah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Will. So UNC's coming off a bye week for this game. What's, what's different for the team? What's, what's changed? Yeah, so having a bye week that allows players on the injury report to have time to heal. And, you know, they'll come back this week, and two of those players for UNC are Josh Downs and Miles Murphy. Uh, Josh Downs has always been a big part of the offense, and will continue to do that this week. The two weeks he was out showed that the offense doesn't just revolve around him, and there are other players that, you know, Drake may can rely on when Downs is uh, not on the field. Yeah, and then the defense has been a crutch of a weaker-than-usual Notre Dame team, so UNC's offense getting the best of a fighting Irish defense will be a key if UNC gets to a barn burner today. So you said last week that um, Notre Dame's quarterback, Tyler Buckner, is, is out for the season with uh, his replacement, Drew Pine, uh, stepping in. What's Notre Dame's offense looking like? How is this going to affect it? Yeah, so we got to see Pine a little bit of last week in their 24-17 win over California. He was 17 for 23, had 150 yards and two touchdowns. But Notre Dame only had 293 total yards, and comparatively for UNC, their offense has gained 547 yards per game and scored about 51 points, so there's a big difference there. But UNC's defense, not as strong as the, uh, UNC's offense. They've allowed more than 293 yards every single game this year, so that could be something that Notre Dame capitalizes on. But it's also something that provides the defense to give them a chance to prove themselves against what is a questionable Notre Dame offense. Uh, defense has been, you know, publicly noted as a weak point of UNC this year, and you know this week is the time to show the show the critics that they can play against big name opponents, and how they play and how the offense plays will uh, will set the tone for the rest of UNC season in my eyes. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Noah. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Will.
On Monday, UNC students can look forward to another well-being day. Those are relatively new additions to the calendar, when all classes are canceled and students are encouraged to take time for themselves. Tijan Wilson asked students on campus how they plan to spend their extended weekend. I've been working all week, it's my day. Blair Tuggle, exercise and sports science. Just getting a break from like all the midterms that have been going on and just hanging out with my friends and doing absolutely nothing. It's my day Hi, my name is Tylee Cornett, and I'm a sophomore at UNC studying, or pre-business. Um, yes, I am looking forward to the wellness day because me and my sweet mates are going to go to Tanger Outlets, and it's going to be my second time going to Tanger, so I look forward to shopping. Yeah, my name is Luke Farinelli. I'm a third year, and I'm a biology major. Uh, on this wellness day, I'm taking my acapella group, the UNC Accordance, to record um, some music for our next album. I'm Kayla Brown, I'm a senior and I'm studying psychology with a minor in neuroscience. I'm just looking for some rest, like the semester already kind of jumping me. I'm doing good, but it's like I need the rest. So I'm gonna be at my friend's crib, just hanging out, taking a day off of school. On my day off. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Layla Pekamian. I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Lauren Lovett. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.